Um, but Angela's going to come and share with us this morning on uh, uh, giving us an understanding of, um, of Abraham from a Jewish perspective. Last night, she presented us with a fantastic overview of the Old Testament. I'm just so disappointed that it wasn't, um, wasn't recorded, but it was absolutely brilliant, giving us a, an overview of how the, the Old Testament is, is, is laid out. And today, she's going to come and share with us on, on uh, this, the life of Abraham from a Jewish perspective. So can we give Angela a warm welcome as she comes today? We're just going to watch a short clip before I begin. Bible, a book whose origins lie thousands of years ago in the Middle East. It still inspires billions today. Creation roots us in the wonder of our own drama. What a beginning. Its teachings provoke controversy. The Ten Commandments are the hysterical believings of a group of desert tribes. We know the Bible is completely accurate. It shows me how dangerous revelation can be. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Seven figures from different walks of life offer their personal perspective on the best-selling book of all time and what it means to them. The women of the Bible still speak to us today. Who was this Jesus Christ and who was it? that murdered him. Even if you've never read a word of the Bible, your life will have been shaped by it. In this program, Raggy Omar goes in search of Abraham. Genesis, the first book of the Bible, relates some of the most iconic stories ever told. Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the Great Flood, and Joseph and his coat of many colours. But one character dominates more pages than any other, Abraham. Abraham's life is the first detailed biography in the Bible. We're told where he was born, where he travelled, and the tests God put him through. And the Bible tells us where Abraham and his family were buried, here in Hebron in Israel's disputed West Bank. These Jewish pilgrims have come here to pay homage to the Old Testament prophet Abraham, whom they believe is buried in a tomb just behind me. For Jews, Abraham is the father of their nation. But amazingly, Christians and Muslims also revere Abraham as their patriarch, and they say that they are also descended from him. World statesmen frequently invoke the name of Abraham as a unifying figure for all three faiths. Many Jews, Muslims and Christians are entirely ignorant of the rich Abrahamic heritage we share in common. And the United States will work for all the children of Abraham. And all the children of Abraham will live side by side in peace. You'd think that this common claim of ancestry would be enough to unite these three faiths. You'd be wrong. All right, we'll just pause that there. We'll stop that there. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here today. Um, I've already really enjoyed meeting some of you last night and such a generous and warm community to come and participate in. So thank you for the invitation, Steve. Um, just one correction, I'm not the head of Old Testament. I'm a lecturer in Old Testament. We don't actually have heads like that at Stirling. Um, and I also um, am 
Dean of Students, so I have a lot to do with the student body at Stirling. I also teach part of the Catalyst course, the Biblical Studies component. So Catalyst is our young adults course and we deal with a lot of the complexities of the text, not just the um, learning about the history of the text. Um, I might just get you to pop the first PowerPoint up. And I come to you today um, just wanting to show you that first clip from Raga Omar, an Islamic journalist. And I'm speaking today about a Jewish perspective of Abraham, Abraham, but I'm actually a Christian. So just to bring those three traditions together, um, like Daniel Boyaran, who's a Jewish scholar, um, talks on political identity, he says he often overlooks the fence of Christianity with great interest and sometimes envy. In some ways, as an Old Testament scholar, that's the place that I take as well, looking at Judaism. And the Jewish tradition is... I come from a Christian perspective, but I'm looking over the fence with great admiration. And a lot of what I'll be talking about here today about Abraham is coming from the Old Testament. So often in a Christian tradition, when we talk about Abraham, we'll start with what the New Testament says, which says a lot. But today I'm predominantly talking about what the Old Testament tells us about the person of Abraham. But I want to start with a question for you. What is your family tree? I want you to be thinking about your family tree. Do you know much about your family tree? Do you have great people in your family history? Do you have ancestors that you talk about still? The great characters that are larger than life within your family tree. Perhaps they were some individual who migrated to this sunburnt country decades ago, or as I was learning this morning, even in the last three years, perhaps. Perhaps you have a family member or you are yourself an Aboriginal and you have tribal connections that date back to traditions for over 40,000 years long. Perhaps you have family members who are convicts or refugees. My own family history has very little backstory about great ancestors. They're probably seedy characters or lost in history due to their lack of distinguishing features, that they weren't doing anything particularly amazing, or that they lied about their own stories. We can't get past my grandfather's era on my father's side, so we don't even know if I was originally an O'Donoghue. We don't even know if we're really Irish or if that was made up. I remember being at a post-colonial conference a few years ago where there were many Aboriginal attendees and First People speakers from Canada and America. And they would talk about their family connections and heritage and location. That's how they identified themselves. And this really highlighted to me my rootlessness, my lost generations, that I could only speak of three generations. Well, now I've had children, four for many of these Aboriginal and American people, their stories had to be put together again after decades or centuries of attempts of erasure. It was core to their identity, to who they were as people. And we see many TV shows today about this theme on SBS, Who Do You Think You Are?, where celebrities' histories are traced. And it's quite interesting to watch the emotion that emerges when they start to find out about their family background the enormous interest in Ancestry.com and other websites that look into family trees. 
It's interesting to see the emotional impact that that can have on us today as we consider where we come from. Learning about the courageous individuals in our families or the victimised and what they went through, the powerful or the oppressed in our lineage. Now, the stories of Abraham and his family that have been passed on for centuries, we get a mixture of heroic acts, which we love to talk about, but also very flawed characters, and Abraham himself was a very flawed character. We get complex stories of individuals and communities that were buffeted by the era they lived in and yet influenced the world around them. And here's a picture of Abraham's family tree. He's actually not at the top. It's Terah who's at the top. So this era, when we get to talking about Abraham in Old Testament studies, is often called the patriarchal era, or at least it used to be time of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and often those three names are put together, the trio of, I hope that's not my phone going off because that happened last night, (laughs) it's actually Jay calling me. These, as I said last night to the group, these stories about Abraham are not just about Abraham actually, they're also about the matriarchs, they're as much about the women as about the men in the stories. But it is worth us stopping and looking at this time frame and considering some of the things that were going on to understand the people that we read about in these texts. So the setting seems to be the Middle Bronze Age, probably about 2000 BC, with Abraham being depicted as a tribal chief. The major influences that we read about, first of all on the left-hand part of the screen, we have the empires of Mesopotamia. Ur, right over there, above that Babylon, so modern-day Iraq, as we saw in the clip. Moving upwards, you can see Nineveh up the top. That became the capital of Assyria, a rising power in the ancient world. Coming around those great rivers of the Tigris and Euphrates, because that was the Fertile Crescent, that's where population lived, the cradle of civilization, and we come around and we see these places that feature straight away in the story of Abraham, Haran up the top. There's a couple of other places, Mari. Coming down, we see the Levant or Canaan, which later becomes Israel. And over on the left-hand side of the screen, Egypt. Egypt remains the constant throughout the story. Just going to show you a picture here of... Abraham's journey, because that's something we're going to talk a bit about this morning, the migration of Abraham's family, starting from Ur, heading right up through those rivers, and the dotted line is a potential journey, the solid line, the traditional journey, and then travelling down on through to Egypt. I wanted to compare that picture to another picture. Last night when we were talking about the history of Israel, One of the great events in the history of Israel was the exile in 586 BC where the people of Judah are taken by the Babylonians into exile. And it's in that time frame that it's thought that the canon of the Old Testament really was starting to come together, that their stories were considered significant. And if I go back to the previous picture, you can see that their journey is the same as Abraham's but in reverse. 
They're going from Jerusalem over to Babylon. They don't quite go to Ur. And it leads us to think about a few things when we're studying the Old Testament. How significant this story of Abraham was for those who were going into exile. How suddenly that story meant something to them about migration, about movement, about this great father, about a land that they thought that they had lost, that was promised to them. In terms of studying this period of time, we have the biblical text. But in more recent times, we've also had other texts that have been used to inform us about the regions that Abraham passed through, the Nuzi and the Mari tablets. They don't say anything about Abraham, but they say a whole lot about laws and marriage customs and administration and so on, that for many years in critical scholarship, people used to say, well, what we read in Genesis, we can't find any other evidence for. Abraham's not mentioned, it's not, you know, probably not a historical figure And that's quite a controversial issue right throughout Old Testament scholarship. But one thing that these findings have done is inform us about some of the practices that were previously thought to be quite unique to Genesis, but were actually practised in the ancient world, such as we have this quite interesting verse in Genesis 15, 2 to 3, about Eliezer of Damascus, someone you probably never heard a sermon on. He was a servant or a slave of Abraham's, who was going to inherit all of Abraham's wealth if Abraham did not have his own biological child. He'd adopted this servant, never heard of again, as he gets overshadowed by the stories of Ishmael and Isaac. But the Mari and the Nuzi tablets highlight that these kind of inheritance laws were common, as well as some of the marriage practices. I'm going to put aside some of those questions about the historicity of Abraham today and about whether he existed or not to talk about the stories. And I'm going to focus on a few passages. My message today is not, I I kind of warned Steve, I'm not a three-point sermon person. I don't do that well, I'm an educator. But I do want to draw together a message today coming from some particular passages. We're going to look at Genesis 12 and Genesis 18. 18 and 19. And our major theme today is actually going to be hospitality. So this statement kind of sums up a little bit of what Raga Omar was trying to say, but I'm wanting to start from the point that he left saying, talking about the differences. I actually want to start by talking about the similarities. The Abraham Path Global Negotiation Project of Harvard University stated that over three and a half billion people, so over half of the human race, trace their history or faith back to Abraham. And that's astounding when we consider that. There have been many wars fought on the differences and still being fought on the differences and the interpretation of the texts around Abraham in the Torah, the Old Testament, and the Quran. But there are so many similarities and it is without doubt that Abraham is an intriguing figure. But who was he? Well, Abraham 
is not somebody that we study in isolation. We study Abraham with the events that occur in his life and the people that he related to. Know that Steve will be talking further on Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael means actually the L at the end means God. Ishmael means God hears. In a story of tragedy and a story where Abraham's best side isn't necessarily seen. Sarah and Isaac, those stories completely wrapped up in the story of Abraham. And one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament in 22, the sacrifice or the call to sacrifice Isaac. Again, something that Steve will be covering. So we're leaving the difficult bits (laughs) for Steve. And in Jewish tradition, often this is the part of the Bible that was wished away. Just like the exile. How do we understand God commanding a father to sacrifice this son who was key to the promise? Um, Abraham's mentioned right throughout the Old Testament. I won't even list the passages that he's mentioned. And we know him as, well, the name Abraham, Ab, meaning father, the father of the faith. I mean, that raises a question immediately. Isn't actually Moses the father of the faith in the sense of the one who came to give the law, the Ten Commandments and the Torah and all that followed? Abraham, when we read the stories, doesn't teach Unlike Moses, unlike Jesus, Abraham doesn't teach. We read stories about Abraham and the things that happened to Abraham. And Sarah is even more fascinating in the sense of the rest of the Old Testament and its lack of focus on her. So for such an incredible story about this child that was to come, Sarah is only mentioned once outside of Genesis in the Old Testament and that's in the book of Isaiah. That's fascinating to me. Like, isn't this core to their identity in Judaism and that story of faith and promise? And there's lots of assumed reasons for that. Abraham was a very wealthy person and often left territories with even more wealth. But it's interesting to note, for all these things that that are kind of fascinating and, you know, draw us to Abraham... When we start reading the story of Abraham, he is not introduced to us as the righteous, faithful person that we, in tradition, have seen him. I was talking last night with with the crew that came about Genesis 6 and the Nephilim, these giants, these sons of God that married the daughters of men and the offspring were like giants And they are called the heroes of their time. Abraham's not introduced to us as a hero. In fact, if we have a look at Genesis 11, so if you've got a Bible, and most of you would have a phone, if not a Bible, that you can look up. Last night we talked about how Genesis 1 to 11, we have these creation stories and stories of the spiralling of humanity, Noah and the flood, Babel, and then we get to these genealogies in chapter 11. These fantastical stories suddenly turn into genealogies and that's when we usually switch off. 
And 11 verse 22, we get, this is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abraham and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran. Hmm, interesting. The father of both Milcah and Iskar. Now Sarah was barren. She had no children. And that's how we're introduced to Sarah. Straight away, we haven't even been told that's an issue yet. As in, well, lots of people were barren and are. And what's that got to do with anything? We haven't even been told about a promise yet. And in fact, this story seems to be about Terah. Remember that family tree? It was Terah's family tree, not Abraham's. Terah took his son, Abram. So they were already people on the move. His grandson, Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law, Sarah, the wife of his son, Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. They were on the way to Canaan, but they stopped. And Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. So although we often think of Abraham as a man of faith and righteousness, it is not until chapter 17 when God speaks to him, calling him to be blameless. And that's a term that links back to Noah. When we are introduced to Noah, Noah's righteous. He's chosen because he's righteous. We don't get that indication of Abraham, first of all. And I think what's really appealing to us in the Abraham story is the imagery around the call by God to walk with me, this intimacy, probably taking us back to the Garden of Eden kind of imagery of a relationship with God or even Jesus walking with his disciples. So we're going to dig a little bit deeper about this story of Abraham. But first of all, I wanted to identify straight out some of the problems with the story of Abraham. And I'm someone who gravitates to the darker stories in the Bible rather than hides from them. I think we should expose them, talk about them, try to understand them rather than avoid them. It is too simplistic to say Abraham was a righteous man and faithful and therefore we should be like Abraham. The story is far more interesting and far more complicated than that. Within the story of Abraham, as well as these great stories of promise and hope that we're going to get to, there are also the stories of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're going to touch on that today. We're not going to go into depth with that because we're going to talk more about hospitality. But it's there and it has been used. And last night we're talking... The Bible's been used to liberate and free and it's also been used to abuse and that's one passage that has been massively used to bind and oppress people. The treatment of Sarah. She's treated as a sister twice in the narratives. Isaac does the same thing with his wife. And that's not just, oh, this is my sister, that's nice. She's married off to other kings. If Jay did that to me... This is George Clooney, might be a little bit upset. The story of Hagar and Ishmael, the inheritance laws and the covenant traditions, they are very complicated stories. The sacrifice of Isaac, as I've mentioned. And then the overriding issue that comes straight up when we talk about Abraham, how the issue of land is dealt with throughout Israel's subsequent history, 
based on what we're about to get to in 12 verse 1. So that's just to put those things out there. One of the strengths in the Jewish tradition is the ability to argue, to debate, to discuss, to expand on. In Christian tradition, and I think particularly in the evangelical tradition, we've more sought to tie up the difficulties into a neat picture, into a neat box. And I think the challenge when, if you were to seriously sit and read Genesis 12 to 50, the Abrahamic stories resist neat boxes. It bursts out here and there, and to my mind, as I said before, that's what I think makes the Bible so interesting. But also that the God of these stories breaks out of those boxes and the conventions of the day to do new things. And the players in, our, in those stories repeatedly break our expectations, whether they're high expectations or low expectations. So it might be that we have a low expectation of this foreign king and he turns out to be the righteous one in the story. We have a high expectation of Abraham being the righteous one. So coming to the promises, I know you've discussed already covenants, so I'm not going to say much about it other than to suggest a a few things about the nature of promises. We find three key passages which talk about promises or covenant. So from that verse that I mentioned in 11.30, Sarah was barren, she had no children. Well, okay, that's a problem for inheritance. But what has that got to do with the rest of the story? In chapter 12, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, well, he'd already left, your people and your father's household, well, that's a little bit closer to home, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. That's when the barrenness of Sarah becomes an issue. How is that we already know that's a problem? We already know that this is a promise that's impossible unless God intervenes. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That's further developed in chapter 15 and 17 and becomes specifically a covenant, where the the language in the Hebrew says that they will cut a covenant. So this issue of Sarah's barrenness that's going to already put this promise at risk, it's a cycle that we see right throughout Genesis, with the promise hinging on a child at risk. We see this right throughout Exodus with Moses, right into the stories of Samuel, into the stories of Jesus. If the people were going to be liberated, a baby, the most vulnerable in the community, is at risk of that promise coming to fruition. Walter Brueggemann, very well-known Old Testament scholar, reminds us, quote, the juxtaposition of the barrenness of Israel and the speech of God is definitional for Israel. Barrenness marks the deep futility of Israel. Speech of God asserts the freedom and power of God to work his will among the hopeless. And the will of God was to do something new. And throughout the story, there's actually already we've been introduced to some of the other options. It could have been Lot. It could have been Eliezer. It could have been Ishmael. Abraham is given a command to go 
and a promise in 12, 2 to 3. And this reference to name, his name being great, that picks up on a term, the name repeated right throughout Genesis. These would be gifts and it would be that they would be a blessing to all people. By chapter 24, we actually see this command of leaving his family broken. Abraham actually sends a servant to find a wife for Isaac back to his family, breaking this command to go. By chapter 17, Abraham and Sarah would be the father and mother of nations, plural, which brings up an issue for us. How are they going to just be, how is this promise just for a nation? And this is where some of the debate throughout history has occurred. I want to hone in now on this movement idea. I'll just, that's, I've found this a very helpful way of reading the Old Testament, that often when you're reading it, there's a theological angle, God, there's a social angle with Israel, and there's an economic angle with the land. And in the story of Abraham, we see all of these at play. Israel doesn't even exist, but there's a promise the way that they would live and have their being and prosperity as a nation would be through land and they would be in relationship with God. These stories, this promise is all bound up in a story of movement. And within that story of movement, there are connections the whole way through with foreigners. So as that Raga Omar quote at the beginning suggested that's actually been part of the problem with this story. It's a story that's often been claimed or used to speak about selectivity, about the choosing of a nation, a specific people, land, territory. But there are many parts within this Abrahamic story which seem to actually go against this trend. So we've already seen that the people were already on the move in chapter 11 with Terah and then in chapter 12, Abraham moving. Through this era in history, the empires were on the move. Migration was common. And Abraham's family were part of that shift. With that movement, that meant intermarriage, interaction, learning about other cultures beyond the traditional family. When we're actually reading these stories of Abraham, this they're written in a journey cycle. They're written with geography in mind. And often in the Old Testament, this idea of cycle, which we probably think is um, we're meant to be progressing, we're always meant to be going forward. Actually, in Old Testament stories, you're meant to be going back around. The stories of your ancestors were things you were meant to learn and grow from. Places are very significant in this story. Locations of worship but beyond that, also the idea that there is a mobile God that is compared to what we find later in the Old Testament, a static God in a temple, in one place, in one nation with boundaries. Again, Walter Brueggemann suggests that the metaphor of journey or sojourn is a radical one. It is a challenge to the dominant ideologies of our time which yearn for settlement, security and placement the life of this family is matched by the way of Yahweh himself. 
Thus Yahweh is not understood as a God who settles and dwells, but as a God who sojourns and moves about. And Brueggemann goes on to talk about the key idea of discipleship picking up from the Abrahamic stories of movement and walking and journey, that walk with me idea. Interestingly, in the Abrahamic stories, there's no hint in Genesis to the ideology of dispossession. This is something that Mark Brett particularly has studied. The notions of ethnicity and nationhood that can be claimed from these stories. But in contrast to the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua, Abraham instead builds altars to Yahweh in the same places that other gods are being worshipped. And he doesn't condemn the other gods. You don't see that in these passages. In fact, the foreigners in the Abrahamic story are often depicted not as a source of fear. The Egyptians, often presented in Exodus as the enemy, actually often appear as righteous in the Abrahamic stories, as does King Abimelech of Gerar. In fact, God talks to Abimelech in a dream and God agrees that Abimelech is pure. Again, a term that had previously been used for Noah, not Abraham. He also says in 20 verse 4 that they are righteous nations. These are strong terms that we would usually associate with the Israelite characters. And I think they have something to say to us about the treatment of foreigners in the Abraham stories in contrast to what we read in Joshua and Deuteronomy. We also have the story of King Melchizedek, the priest of Salem, who was a priest of what's called the God Most High El Elyon. And El is a Canaanite term for God that's taken up in the Old Testament. But in this particular passage, it's linked with the personal name of God, Yahweh. Abraham also connects positively with the Amorites. And yet by 15 verse 16, the Amorites are depicted negatively. In chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, he pays the king of Jebusites tithes. So what do we make of this? Abraham seeks peace with foreigners. It's actually the Abrahamic family who are the alien. What becomes called the Gerim in the Old Testament. You were the alien, but also accept the alien. That's part of the law to treat the foreigner well. Foreigners are often depicted as pure and righteous on a number of occasions, even when the heroes of the story are depicted as not. So our heroes, our traditional heroes. And foreign religion is generally not depicted negatively in contrast with later holiness laws and the conquest practices. And our challenge in Old Testament study is we have both of those traditions together, the exclusive and the inclusive traditions. I want us to have a look now at Genesis 18. I'm not going to read the whole lot to you, 18 and 19. I'm just going to cover a few key points because I want to draw on what I've talked about with the foreigners and the relationship of movement that Abraham had and then this particular occasion in Genesis 18. The Lord, and that's Yahweh. So whenever you see the capital letters for Lord, that's referring to Yahweh. 
appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby and when he saw them, he hurried to the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, that's a small letter L, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham quickly rushed into or hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three sears of fine flour and knead it and make some bread. And then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk. I mean, it sounds just revolting. And the calf that had been prepared and set them before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him, again, plural. They're in the tent, he said. Then the Lord, so Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. And then we have the rest of the story depicts Abraham walking with them on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. And then we have in chapter 19, two angels arriving at Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gateway. So we have a parallel that Lot's sitting in the gateway to the city, just like Abraham was sitting outside of his house. And when he saw them, he got up to meet them, bowed down with his face to the ground didn't run like Abraham. Abraham ran to them. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him. And we know what happens there. He presents a feast to them. Then the townspeople surround them and say, we want to have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look. So Lot extends his hospitality to his daughters. I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. And the story goes on. Pretty horrific account of hospitality. I think there are a couple of things that stand out in the theme of hospitality here. Going back to 18, the intimacy of the fellowship with God present in the midst is very appealing for our readings. Jump on here. The disturbing part of chapter 19 
and the cultural clash we have when we hear those stories. There have been many ways throughout Jewish history that these chapters have been interpreted. And I'm going to particularly look at some of them. So, traditionally, in Jewish scholarship, the hospitality element of 18 has emphasised the announcement but that the announcement only occurred because of the hospitality. So, what would have happened if Abraham hadn't been hospitable? Now, Abraham would not have refused them. That was part of the culture, to have these people in their home. The haste of Abraham rushing around has been interpreted two different ways. One way is out of just pure excitement, the Lord is here in my presence and I've got to get food and I'm rushing around bit like Martha, perhaps, in the New Testament. But some people have suggested in Jewish tradition that the haste was about trying to get rid of them very quickly. Throughout time, in Jewish tradition, in the commentaries, they would add to these stories. So, rather than Abraham being out the front of his tent, he would have been in a courtyard because in Hellenic tradition, you would have had a courtyard. So, they contextualise the stories as we often do. By the time we get to Philo, we have ideas about is God in disguise because there were ideas around at the time about pagan gods visiting people in disguise, tricking them and that became the focus. And the birth theme, the announcement gets subdued. Throughout time, people have tended to contextualise this story to bring their interpretations of what hospitality means and I think we have done the same thing. So, if you've heard this story before, you've probably heard it from a New Testament perspective where Paul talks about, in Christian tradition, about entertaining angels, that you should have an open house to allow people to come in, the stranger in our midst. And I've heard many a sermon about what we do about this hospitality today. But I want to tie together some of these threads because I don't think the stories of hospitality in 18 and 19 are just about telling people to come and have lunch with you. They are stories in the midst of mass migration, of the tension and the wonders of the interactions with foreigners in these stories. And this is where I want to draw on the tradition within Judaism and Christianity to extend these stories into our culture and talk a little bit about our hospitality. So, what can be said about hospitality to the stranger from these narratives that have any correlation to today's world? I began by talking about my own family roots and the lack of base that we tend to have today to even extend hospitality beyond our own needs. When Jesus is asked, who's my neighbour? He tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, it's about a foreigner, again. And it's about the enemy to the person he was speaking to. It was shocking. That's your neighbour. Whereas we tend to think literally, oh, it means I need to get to know my next door neighbours. And often that's a guilt thing in our sermons. I want to say something that might be a little controversial about extending hospitality here that has massive relevance to what we see on our news reports today, even yesterday. 
stories that betray people who are migrating or refugees as people to be feared. As in Melbourne, you can't go out to dinner in case you're going to be attacked by Sudanese gangs that generate fear. And I think the Abrahamic stories can be picked up to challenge some of that, the fear of the foreigner, the fear of the other. Today we are seeing the greatest mass migration movement in history. So we have a lot of similarities to this Abrahamic time. Due to war and conflict and famine, and there are enormous complexities in that movement. But I would suggest also that perhaps God is on the move too. The forever migrant, the foreigner, the sojourner who wishes like the three strangers to rest a while in our presence while on the move. These are not strangers in our mix, actually. They're really identifiable when they're identified in the media. And it's when we take them in and feed and love them that we're changed. In the Abrahamic story, the telling of the promise of the child to this elderly couple is made because Abraham stops to entertain. And it's in the midst of hospitality that the impossible is announced and is met with incredulity. This doesn't mean that only good things come from here. There's a lot of pain and suffering, as we'll see with the Isaac story. When I entertain someone whose original context is vastly different from my own, a refugee camp or another country, and I hear their story, my place can become a safe third space. And there are many in our community who need that today. It's the way that we tell these stories that makes a difference. The people of Israel needed the story of Abraham to counter the story that it held about itself later on, of potential loss of identity and assimilation into a vast empire, of the temptation to become more and more exclusive as a nation. And that is the story right throughout history and part of the challenge. But there are many Orthodox Jews today who resist that temptation as well and seek for peace. When we tell the story of Abraham today, we need to tell it warts and all, with an appreciation that there are seasons to emphasise the grace and seasons to emphasise the identity. We need to tell the stories of the women as well in the story, the abuse, the neglect and the children. Because how often has a church been guilty of telling, not telling those stories at its peril? Today in Australia, in the 21st century, we need again to tell stories that challenge whether we're accepting the stranger in our midst and whether we were, we're going to be challenged in our faith to move. And I just wanted to finish today by saying that's a really easy thing for me to get up and say. Take the stranger in your midst, into your home. I actually find that much easier. But when I first married a pastor with Jay, I was an introvert, he was an extrovert, and in our first year of ministry together we had 30 people in our houses over a whole year 30 weekends out of 50 and I burnt out in that time and so this message of hospitality became a very negative message to me but I also realized I had been a person who'd run away from my own family I took up that Abraham call like it was mine it was easy actually to leave my own family The last weekend I sat with my father who's dying at the moment. Um, So my meal with him was him having a feeding bag and me eating in another room because I didn't want to offend him. With a difficult relationship, it was easy for me to sit with my Sudanese friend in my lounge room and not with my own family. So I don't want to use this story 
as another guilt story, but to say, read it and see what it confronts in you. Let me pray for you as we finish today. Lord, this is a long and complex story. It's a story that has carried through generations and generations and has brought hope, but has also brought fear and binding to people. It's led to wars that are still going on. In our culture, in our context today, there are many people who feel like outsiders. And I pray that part of this story of Abraham would be a challenge to help them become an insider as we face out. That we would have people at our table, whether they be our closest family or a person from the farthest place away on this earth. And that we would continue to see hospitality change communities as well as ourselves. Thank you for your word and thank you that we can share it again in this context in 21st century Australia today. Amen.